Well, welcome to the uh, second talk on creation theology. In the first talk, I summarised creation theology as the the what and the why, um, the big picture around um, defining the boundaries and the the core of the creation theology. And the second uh, talk will be on the so what. Um, and the now what? In other words, taking that paradigm, that position on the gospel into, into its consequences. Um, you know, what does this mean for being a Christian in the world? What would this mean for the curriculum of Bible colleges and theological colleges? Um, uh, what, what would this mean for how we read the Bible. So I've subtitled this talk um, Creators Not Critics because that really summarises the position I want to develop with, uh, with you um, in, this, in this talk. Now in part one um, I charted that wider landscape that the creation theology gives us um, it's a wider landscape, I argued, than what I was calling the redemption gospel. And I just want to stress what I did say in that talk, which was I'm not presenting as a key theme a choice, an either-or, between these two. We, we need redeeming. That's obvious. We need saving. And any thinking person who denies that that is deceiving themselves. Humanity has problems. We have collective blood on our hands. You don't need to be a religious person to confront that. Now, my point was more, where does the gospel begin or where does the story of the gospel begin? Um, and the argument which I developed was the creation gospel begins with a deep anchor in Genesis chapter 1, whereas the redemption gospel begins de facto in Genesis chapter 3. Um, toward the end, I made the point that this creation gospel is not a soft version of the gospel. It's very contested in today's world, uh, and it challenges the secular um, worldview substantially. I, I think even more substantially, it, at the root, it challenges uh, the secular worldview more substantially than the redemption gospel because its claims are wider and, uh, and they're more stupendous. The claim of the creation gospel is that Jesus is Lord of all and there is therefore no person, no event, no system that can claim immunity from his rule. He is not just Lord of the church. He is Lord of the cosmos. Whereas in, in contrast, the redemption gospel feels more specialised, almost defensive, as if we've carved out a, a region where we can claim Jesus is Lord as a religious domain. Let me give you an example of how this works in practice with a recent event. Um, about a, a week ago, I saw somebody walking down the street in Newtown, one of our suburbs in Sydney. It's, it's one of those inner city um, uh, 
I suppose, newly um, attractive suburbs where the hip and happy happening people live. Uh, My daughters live there. Uh, It is dominated by a culture of secularism and uh, postmodern scepticism. You do not get... Um, you do not get a free pass if you claim faith and Christianity in that, in that uh, area of Sydney. A lady was walking down the street and she had a T-shirt which on the front read, Jesus died for somebody's sins. Um, and of course it feels like, oh, this person could be putting forward a Christian point, you know, declaration. But on the back it read, just not mine. I, I later found out that's from a song by Patti Smith. I didn't know it at the time. Now, at face value for Christians, that that seems blasphemous. Um, It it reminded me in some ways of the the Jews who, the the rabble who surrendered Jesus and said, let his sins be on our head. But as I thought about it, I thought I read it as something more. It's it's a partly um, understandable rejection of the church's uh, posture and arrogance of naming people as sinners while exempting ourselves from that nomenclature. And you can understand how, on the other side of the fence, if you're not a Christian, how offensive that sounds to people. So I asked myself, well, what would I put on the front of that shirt with the creation gospel in mind? Perhaps rather than saying, you know, Jesus died for somebody's sins as the first point of declaration, I would say something like, Jesus made everybody special. Now, if you make that claim, Jesus made everybody special. Uh, The back of the shirt wouldn't make any sense. If you put on the back of the shirt, just not me, it it would sound really sad and self-sabotaging, which is probably closer to the truth. So uh, I thought that was a practical example of the way that we have declarations into the modern secular world that are really relevant. They are cutting, but I think they create more of a bridge for people. Well, so what? Where does this lead us? Um, Because this creation thinking um, gives us a very integrated view of the cosmos. And that's attractive. That's attractive. That's the beginning of the so what. We now have an integrated view of the cosmos. I think the integration essentially comes uh, on two dimensions. Um, Firstly, it collapses the public-private dualism. Uh, It says there is no space that God is not Lord of. And secondly, uh, it collapses the kind of metaphysics of heaven because it establishes a continuity between heaven and earth. In fact, it it emphasises the new creation. Uh, And that's really, really valuable. Um, And... um, Uh, This obviously takes the gospel now into the public arena. And and so it is often called uh, public theology, sometimes also political theology, but public theology would be the broad term. And this public theology opens up a wider landscape for the actions of God and the actions of our faith. Uh, As a result, there are lots of um, good people, very intelligent Christians who are explore, exploring this wider gospel of public theology. Um, uh, I'll name a few of them. Uh, Regent College, I think, is pioneer, uh, pioneering uh, creation thinking in the world of Bible colleges, has done so for 
quite a long time, which is why it's so loved on the planet. Um, the faith at work movement, uh, which is really trying to take God out of just church life into broader public life, is another example. Um, various forms of social interaction and, and, and the social gospel. Um, on the very intellectual end, the movement uh, loosely called Radical Orthodoxy with John Milbank as the pioneer. Um, Individuals, I think Tom Wright is really opening up uh, this space by uh, his emphasis upon the new heaven and a new earth and the continuity of creation. Uh, Oliver O'Donovan, even more explicitly, um, his work is heavier, but it's very, um, very thought-provoking. Last century, um, Jacques Ellul, um, who was highly involved French um, politician and uh, thinker, um, definitely pioneered a lot of this public theology. And Miroslav Volf, um, um, who I think his PhD was in the Faith at Work movement, but Miroslav is somebody who, who's also doing so. Lots of people are pushing into this space and really um, I've benefited from interacting with all of them. Uh, but, and it's a, it's a significant but, I think this public engagement um, comes with some problems. At the extreme end, it's what I'd call the takeover problem, which is the Christian right. Uh, everywhere in the world, I think we're seeing the Christian right invading politics and education. And uh, this invasion is embarrassing sometimes often, uh, for Christians, um, and it's certainly resented um, by the secular world. Um, I, I call this approach essentially it's a distribution approach. In other words, it's just Christians widening the distribution, but it's the same old product. It's the same old thinking. Uh, the unfortunate outcome of this is that the message they're transporting is the same old sin-based gospel. Um, and it's taking this widening landscape as an invitation to distribute that same gospel everywhere. Um, it, it really sounds like, and often is, a, a sort of Christian coup d'etat. You know, we want to run the country um, same way we run the church. And um, this is really, really problematic. Uh, I don't don't want to go, go there, but that's one really big issue where the thinking doesn't change, just the arena gets wider. Um, at, at the milder end, um, there's a sort of less of a takeover, more of an infiltration, which perhaps was what you could call the faith at work movement, um, which has got some really noble um, aims to it and it, on the whole I think is is heading in very much the right direction. But with all of its good intentions, it runs into problems. I mean, my, my observation is that because it's still stuck without the more breathtaking paradigms of a creation gospel, it still tends to come down to use the workplace to evangelise or set up Bible studies. Um, or um, it also be, becomes perhaps more commonly, the voice of ethics, personal ethics in, in, in the workplace. You know, 
how do I respond to drinking at work? How do I respond to bad language at work and so on? Um, and, uh, yeah, frankly, that, that doesn't take you very far at all. Um, more broadly, there, there would be the integrative approach, so not take over, not just infiltrate, but integrate, which is um, much more the academic thinking side of public theology, and that's, that's a world that's very exploratory. I've already mentioned Regent, um, and Regent College has served the Christian world wonderfully in leading the way in exploring creation theology. Now, there's a, there's a sort of a background in Regent's history for that, um, and there's an implication in its, in its focus. Um, most Bible colleges in the world are supporting a specialised Christian ministry. You go there in order to enter the ministry. But Regent has uh, always aimed for the Christian who remains in their, in their world, um, for, the, for the non-specialist Christian. And that has um, forced on them, uh, or that sounds coercive, it's, um, it's inspired them to get a broader picture of God at work in the world. Um, and as a result, they have really widened uh, the gospel and we've benefited greatly in gospel conversations from Ian Proven and Rick Watts, Rethinking Genesis 1, Renaming Creation as Temple. We're eternally indebted to their work. But even at Regent, I think the so what is still vacant. Um, you know, I, I often think you can only innovate so far and then someone else has got to pick up the baton and run with it. Um, but the implications of the creation gospel are, uh, when I say it's vacant, it's the, it's the implications of the capabilities and postures because the traditional Christian capabilities would be things like Bible knowledge, um, interpretation, preaching, um, prayer and worship, um, pastoral care, and so on. These are, these are very, very valuable skills, but they're still shaped primarily by the uh, Christian specialist posture. And you know, the question is, what could alternative disciplines be for the Christian who is engaged uh, in the workplace? Uh, the Radical Orthodoxy Movement and John Milbank, I've mentioned, look, it's fantastic stuff, except it's extremely academic and philosophical, and and um, so needs a lot of interpretation for the average person. Um, the world of public theology, though, uh, which is, as far as I can work out, an increasing domain of study, um, is is really the world of critiquing issues and. I've chosen those words really carefully. Um, I want to give you some examples of this, and there are examples that I'm not mentioning to criticise because I actually think they're, they're heading in the right direction, but they're, they're showing how we're stuck um, at a crossroads with further to go. So, for instance, if you look at socialissues.org.au, which is a archived Anglican Church website um, where the Anglican Church has... Um, from time to time, over a period of time, I don't think it's doing it now, you know, created papers into the public domain. And if you look at them, primarily they're submissions. 
uh, to Parliament on issues like euthanasia, penalty rates, social sustainability, stem cell research, etc. So these issues are issues that are perceived to have a moral or ethical quality, perceived to have a Christian position, and our posture is the posture of critiquing, you know, writing a point of view. Now, nothing wrong with that, but I am going to say that is limited. More, um, I suppose, one of the thought leaders in Australia, if not the thought leader, is Andrew Cameron, and uh, I went to a lecture that Andrew held um, recently, uh, which was really uh, helpful and inspiring. Um, Andrew is now at uh, St Mark's um, in um, Canberra. And, and Andrew had a, a list of the typical topics you know, that public theology address. He had it, what he called the Sacred Seven. The Sacred Seven was divorce, euthanasia, gambling, substance abuse, abortion, sexuality and religious freedom. And then he had the favourite five, which were refugees, climate change, equality, poverty, diversity and inclusion. Again, these are issues that are seen to be moral dilemmas with a Christian point of view, where our posture is to put forward some kind of critique of the public position. Uh, Andrew went on to say that in, in, in these topics, we Christians tend to gravitate for guidance in the world of public theology towards the parts of the scripture where the speaker and hearer do not share the same assumptions about how things are. This is a really important point. In other words, the speaker and the hearer are on opposite sides of a fence. Um, And he gave examples of prophets in the scriptures speaking truth to power, like Nathan and David, Elijah and Ahab, um, Esther and Ahasuerus, Uh, Nehemiah to Artaxerxes, Paul versus Agrippa. So they are very importantly, and there's nothing wrong with prophets, but they are, as it were, inviting us to take a position outside the system, not inside the system. Um, And the practical examples that Andrew finished with were all about how, you know, essentially how to write to the media, how to have a, you know, who wrote letters to the editor or something. Um, almost like, you know, private versions of the Centre for Public Christianity, which is a great organisation, by the way. My point about all this is that it is, I think, yearning for a new voice. At its best, um, it, the, uh, I think people who are pushing out here are aware there's more to do. Uh, and I could feel that certainly in Andrew's talk. Um, but elsewhere, uh, there's sort of a a felt need to stretch as if that voice isn't quite right, Um, a yearning for what I would call a new rhetorical situation that's less adversarial, a new communication paradigm. And uh, the the, the best example of this yearning was a paper that Andrew wrote some time ago, ago, gorgeously entitled How to Say Yes to the World Towards a New Way Forward in Evangelical Social Ethics, where, as the title suggests, how do we sound less like harping critics and how do we more become advocates of hope. It's a paper which I'll get his um, permission, hopefully, to put up on the Gospel Conversations website. It was written in April 2007 for the Reformed Theological Review and it's, it's really well worth reading. 
But the, I think the problem is still more fundamental because this ethics conversation does something really significant to, to us, to our self-image and our posture. It positions us as critics. That is, a critic is someone who is outside the system and throws stones at it. And there's a place for that. Um, but by definition, this is a sidelined position. It's a voice from the edges. And it's a voice that says no. It's hard not to hear a very Pharisaic tone in it all. Uh, so um, I think we need more than just a new communication paradigm. We need a new, a new identity. And, and this is what, very intriguingly, Bonhoeffer began to search for in his prison letters. Um, his prison letters were a, a, a very intriguing um, he, he said, uh, um, God is no stopgap. He must be recognised at the centre of life, not when we're at the end of our resources. It is his will to be recognised in life and not only when death comes, in health and vigour and not only in suffering, in our activities and not only in our sin. The ground for this lies in the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. He is the centre of life, and he certainly didn't come to answer our unsolved problems. In Christ, there are no Christian problems. Uh, so Bonhoeffer, I think, was really searching. He felt the, the limit of this sin-based paradigm, and we need a new posture, a new picture of what it means to follow Jesus and be under his lordship. Now, this is where the creation gospel offers such a large change in perspective and paradigm. And the reason is it changes our anthropology of ourselves and our, hero, our hearers, not just our anthropology, but our cosmology and even our sociology. Put simply, the creation gospel declares that at heart, we, that is all humanity, are primarily creators or sub-creators of reality, not primarily Critics of reality. Now, this gives us Christians the custodianship of a high anthropology. And you remember my criticism of the redemption gospel, and particularly the total depravity, once it got into Calvin hand, Calvin's hands, it was de facto the lowest of anthropologies. But we should have the highest anthropology of all. Our first declaration to the world as Christians is, you are made in the image of God. And that means he has given you human beings, you my friend, you the checkout person at Coles, you the taxi driver who, who, who took me to the airport, you my work colleagues, he made us to rule the created order. It is an unashamedly anthropic view of reality. Um, but it goes further than that. It isn't just anthropic in terms of calling. It means it includes capex day, which is we are capable of being like God. That is, we humans are not just cogs in a machine. We're not just part of an incessant cause and effect uh, economy. We're not part of the endless waves of motion in the Newtonian cosmos. We, and only we, are capable 
of initiating new reality intentionally. That's a very wondrous position. Um, But there's lots that conspires against that, and it's not just the Christian world. I think our education system conspires against it. I think human nature conspires against it. The enemies of this high gospel are not just, you know, a sort of very conservative Christianity. It's it's most of the world and, and the world's thinking. Um, and uh, I'll tell you a quick story to illustrate how significant a shift this is. Um, I used to be an English teacher and I, I thought of all the tasks we set the kids, you know, writing an essay on King Lear, you know, um, we, we might say something like, you know, explain um, the criticism that the, the, the ending of King Lear is... Um, is weak, um, and how could it be improved? Yeah, we're inviting these like sixteen-year-old kids who none of us, none of us could write a single line of King Lear. We're not capable of doing that. But we put people, you know, in, in kids in the position of getting their dirty little fingers all over uh, King Lear and uh, criticizing him. Um, and I, I, I was so frustrated by this that I. I one day, set the kids a task. You know, I'm just sick, sick of their kind of complacent, yawning attitude to this great literature. Um, we were about to read a Hopkins poem, and I said, look, before we read it, I'm just going to set you a task. I want you to write a 14-line poem. That's called a sonnet. Um, it'll have each line's got, you know, a rhyming pattern of what's called iambic pentameter. Here it is. And, uh, sorry, a rhythmic pattern. And then I want you to... I want you to actually try this rhyming pattern. Um, I want you to write the first eight lines um, with the same rhyme, A-A-A-A-A-A-A. And I want you to write it in such a way that nobody notices it and you can write it about anything. Um, Try writing it about a bird flying through the air. Um, You can do it overnight and come back tomorrow. Of course, I had described the Windhofer. Well, they came back the next day and they couldn't even get going in it. They had, this was the brightest class in a bright school. They just collapsed. And they they came back saying, how can any human being do this? It's intellectually impossible. I said, well, let's read a poem by Hopkins. Now, because they tried to be uh, uh, not critics, but creators, now they were humbled. Um, What this story shows us is that to actually make something is far harder than to criticise something. That's a rule of life. And the act of making demands a, a deeper engagement with, uh, with, with yourself. You just can't make arbitrarily. It challenges my self-image because I have to bring myself into the picture. Um, it requires love. The act of making requires love uh, because to make anything, we human beings do not just make things for functional reasons. Primarily, we make them out of love, that is, out of aesthetics, not just analytics. Um, and that aesthetics, that love, means we put, if it's any good, we put part of ourselves onto the paper, onto the picture, onto the building. Um, and that thing out there becomes a correlate of what is inside me. It is a kind of logos of my ethos. So in schools today, this kind of creative activity is tends to be sidelined uh, into arts and crafts, uh, which trivialises it. The majority of the curriculum is analytic 
and arts and crafts. It just seems like a hobby. It's not intellectual. Um, slowly that's, that's changing and it's changing um, largely through the emergence of the discipline of what's called design. Design um, has become a profession only in the 20th century. Um, but more recently than that, it's become a form of thinking famously known as quote-unquote design thinking, which has taken design outside of its technical specialist paradigm. I mean, you can do undergraduate degrees in design, you can do postgraduate degrees in design, but design thinking has been seen to be something that's much more universal, um, much more useful for general management and problem-solving. It has become an alternative form of problem-solving, right-brained problem-solving. Um, and it's the thinking that interests me rather than just the, the profession. And here's the reason why. The reason why is at heart all human beings are designers. And secondly, design is a divine instinct. Um, one of my uh, good colleagues from the past, Jim Farris, was a great designer from um, Silicon Valley and he wasn't a believer as far as I know, um, but Jim told me that um, he was getting attracted to God um, because he believed design was divine and our conversations were awakening in him the thought that if design is indeed divine and the most defining instinct of humanity, then perhaps it's close to God. Now, I just want to say a few simple things to get the picture of design clearer in your mind, and then we'll return back to our creation theology theme. The first thing I want to just explain is the difference between um, design and the fine arts. Um, they, they, the fine arts is things like sculpture and painting and so on. Uh, they both use the same tools because they're aesthetic arts. The difference is that design has a commercial purpose, whereas the arts do not. They focus on self-expression. Design makes products and services that change things for the better, which means designs have customers and clients. And design went through a big change in the 1990s when they found out that, when they discovered the customer, they discovered human beings use our products. What that in created was a new field of design, which was human-centered design. In other words, I need to not just design things, I'm designing the interaction between people and things. What this did was it actually reshaped design more explicitly as an act of service, because the aim of the thing was to help, was to shape a new experience for somebody. So then the more sophisticated, particularly master's degrees in design, began to say, we're not actually even designing a thing, we're designing an experience for someone. Um, and customer experience and human-centred experience became a very significant body of knowledge. It's, it's the basis for Apple, uh, as an example. So um, design and design thinking is, and th this is the world that I have been deeply involved in for, for many years. Um, it's a long story and it's not the place to tell that story now, I will acknowledge my mentor there, Richard Buchanan, who's probably the, the foremost professor and thinker of design in the world. And Richard and I have a wonderful friendship over many, many years. And it was he who invited me to be the uh, Nuremberg Chair of Design at Carnegie Mellon in 1995. So my relationship with design goes back a long, long way. 
And Richard and I were talking about design thinking and philosophy, I think, years before anyone else was. So what design can do, it can help us forge and clarify and shape out a bit more particularly this new paradigm for the art or act of being a Christian. So what we would be, what we'd be saying is the act of being a Christian is not primarily a critic outside the system, but a, a creator, a, a kind of creator, a, contribu- a contributor to creative effort inside the system. Um, by the way, I'm using outside and inside a lot, and for those of you with ears to hear, the resonance will be I am in saying we are inside the system. I am saying this is an incarnational approach. Um, I must acknowledge Dorothy Sayers here because she pioneered a lot of this thinking in her great book, The Mind of the Maker, uh, in which she looked at the creative writing process as an analogy of God at work in creation. I highly commend that book. Um, What I'm saying is that this field of design can do the same thing uh, today, but probably it can take us in some new directions that she didn't go in. Now, if you're hearing me talk about design and being a designer, you would naturally be thinking, I suspect, designing what? What's, what's the object of design? I mean, we're not, you're not saying Christians are designing kind of products and services. What, what do you mean? Um, well, this is where the gospel and the creation gospel just widens the amphitheatre vastly. Because once you see that the whole cosmos is the theatre of God, the house of God, and as John Walton said, God wants us to take the house and make it a home. You can see that there's no limit to my objects of design. Think of the whole cosmos as a house. Does God want curtains here? Does God want a new kitchen here? Um, once you say that the entire cosmos is a house, it domesticates the entire cosmos and brings design into the centre of it. But... Um, What I found useful to take design out of products and services is the idea that we design intangible things, not just tangible things. Um, And I would summarise the objects of our design as Christians as situations. Situations. We all have, they could be in the family, they could be in my life, they could be at work, but situations, which is the complex interaction between people, systems, events, circumstances, They're objects of design. And whilst I'm emphasising the word situation, I would like to give you another word for the word design, which is a problematic word, not because it's not a good word, just because it's so frequently used in different contexts by different people. A more accurate word would be the word transform, particularly if you put a dash between the trans and the form. Um, because literally transform means I shift the shape of something. And that shape shifting is a gorgeous phrase. So I would say, if I'm now going to parse this out, that we Christians are called to shift the shape of situations. What this leads to is what I like to call the discipleship of design. In other words, we can conceive discipleship as design, a new kind of discipleship. We are disciples of transforming situations, and I can easily see that as thy kingdom come. 
Now, um, of course, there's a ton I could say about this um, and uh, the capabilities or disciplines of being a design disciple are manifold. Um, I've listed eight here and um, I'm looking at the eight thinking, oh, my dear, uh, this is too much to go through after 35 minutes of talking. Um, I will reserve any development of these for some other time, but let me just give you a taste of a few of them. If you said, so what, you know, because you can remember I began critiquing the traditional um, concepts and stereotypes of what a disciple is. So, okay, you could say, so Tony, tell me, what if I was this sort of, what in situations, what would I say? Well, you'd see beauty. That's the number one thing. You would see, you would discover and expect to see the beauty in things the glory in things, which I call the burning bush experience. And beauty is not just proportionality, it's meaning. So that's what you'd be doing. You'd be beautifying situations. Um, another thing you would be doing in order to do that is you would be framing all situations with purpose. You would be putting purpose at the core of things. You would have a leaning always towards advocating outcomes, intentionality, rationale. You would never be satisfied just having goals. You would always enrich goals with values. You'd be a purpose-centered person. Uh, Thirdly, you'd be a person who would advocate possibility and hope. You would frame all situations as latent with potential, not fixed or determined. You would never allow a family situation or a work situation to box you in, you would think there is possibility here. Um, You'd be a person of hope. Um, There are three of the eight. There are are others, and um, I I won't go into the others. But but suffice it to say, there there is real um, discipline in achieving these attitudes and there is associated language in declaring and working with situations um, such that we transform them. I think that I don't need to go into this in detail because Rick uh, will be developing more of this in his design and theology section. Well, um, it's a a wonderful topic. I would like to finish with a five minutes on the book of Nehemiah. Uh, my wife, sweet wife, dear Anne, and I have been reading um, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, and Nehemiah of late. They're, of course, a package. Haggai and Zechariah were the prophets who encouraged Ezra and Nehemiah, and Ezra and Nehemiah had that task of... Um, the post-exilic task of coming back to the broken, shattered walls of Jerusalem and and rebuilding it, first the temple, then the walls. Ezra was more the teacher. Um, Nehemiah was more the man of action, the governor. Um, And he, uh, the whole story of Nehemiah is essentially uh, not so much about the temple, which had been done under Ezra's leadership, but the walls, the walls that created the wonderful city of Jerusalem, the gates in the walls, 
and that thus the city rather than the temple. Now, um, it's, it's a really intriguing story. It's very much around somebody who trans, literally transformed a situation. And I think it's a better paradigm than the prophet, you know, who stands outside and criticises. Um, Nehemiah was inside the system. He, to, to be inside the system, sure, he had to critique, he had to criticise, but he had to encourage, he had to organise, he had to imagine he had a vision. His vision was a finished city. And that was the vision he took to Artaxerxes. By the way, I don't think he went to Artaxerxes as a prophet to criticize him. Very intriguingly, the whole rebuilding of Jerusalem was really sponsored by the Persians, who are a far more liberal-minded um, empire than had been the Babylonians or the Assyrians, who are very much more destructive. Artaxerxes was all in favor of it. He was clearly a mentor of Nehemiah's. Um, that's, in, that's intriguing in itself. And Nehemiah, like any designer, needed sponsors. Um, he needed, he needed uh, the right to play. As a designer, particularly a designer of situations uh, and, and having looked at large change, the story of Nehemiah is a fabulous story seen through the lens of someone who is a designer. What is it, what is he had a situation. He didn't, it wasn't just walls. It was a broken people. He came. The, the people had no heart. They had no morale. They'd lost vision. Sure, the temple was there, but it wasn't really being well used. Um, and uh, he had to re-engineer the social situation because primarily people were out in the fields. They didn't want to live inside Jerusalem. Um, it was by no means the light on the hill that it was meant to be. Um, what we see in this story is, it's, it, it is some really significant paradigm shifts which have been well documented by better biblical scholars than me. Um, uh, the paradigm shift compared to Kings and Chronicles, we are not looking at Kings anymore in the book of Nehemiah. We're looking at citizens. This is really a group effort a community effort for the first time in the, in the Old Testament, a community effort to build the city of God. And by the way, that's the, that leads to the second thing, that the work of God, um, if one had a quote-unquote religious view, would have been finished with a temple. But that's not what we see. We see Nehemiah expanded into that quote-unquote public space, the walls and the gates, and if you read through the list of the people who built the walls and the gates, they were artisans, you know, people who one precinct might have been working in fragrances and perfumes, I think, and another precinct were goldsmiths and so on, and they built their local area. So it's as if the temple is spreading out into the, into the society, into the streets, into the walls and gates around it. And when they finished those walls and gates, they dedicated them. And um, uh, um, in Trevor Longman's uh, an, uh, book on the Old Testament, he suggests the word dedicate, which the NIV used is not the right word. It's better translated consecrate. In other words, it was just the walls and gates were just as holy as the temple. We're seeing here that God's interest is not just a religious, uh, ritualistic interest. His interest is the entire, the pulse of life of, of 
people in communities producing things, um, the interaction between the farms and the city. And the phrase that Jerusalem was the holy city is, this. It, it, Nehemiah says that twice. It's the only time a history book calls Jerusalem the holy city. I mean, the Psalms do, but that's all. And so um, we're, we're almost literally seeing in Nehemiah an analogy, and it's even not an analogy, it's almost, it's almost a example of what we're talking about, the move from a private religious space into a public space. And that move, not characterised by being a critic, not characterised at all. I mean, Nehemiah was not a prophet. He was a builder. And because he was a builder, he changed things. How important was that? Well, think about it. If he had not done that, if he had not created what became the holy city of Jerusalem, it is entirely feasible, speaking humanly, that the only place on the planet that was the steward of the blessing of Abraham and the revelation of Moses of the one God, the monotheistic God, the holder of the promises, would have been corrupted and disintegrated. It was as important, in a sense, as the baby Jesus was to be protected against Herod. So um, I'd like to finish with that. I, 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 I think Nehemiah is a great example, and, and he exemplifies um, one of the great traits of design, which I will finish with. It's one of my eight. It's called a life of an action. Now, that's very important. E-N dash action. In other words, his life married activity and contemplation. You see that several times in the book. He prays and then he does something. And he always thinks before he acts. So he's a designer. That's what a designer does. A designer thinks before they act. And this is very, very relevant to the yearning of the modern soul. Because everywhere you see a polarity um, presenting itself between action and contemplation. You know, do I have a, a busy life or do I have a life of space and prayer and contemplation. And it tends to be an either either or. Um, Design unites them. I bring them together. I have a life of activity, but I have a life when I retire and I contemplate upon that activity in order to find God's way in it. Uh, It's a gorgeous picture. So I'll leave you with that story. God bless you all.